In today's episode, I speak with Mason Mortimer. Mason is a deacon at his church. And unlike many of my guests, Mason is not a pastor or a theologian by trade. For 17 years, he's worked in the financial services industry. But prior to going into that, he went to Bible college and was feeling called by God into ministry. But later on, he found out that he could serve the Lord through his work in the financial services industry. And so with Mason, I have a really important discussion, I think, about the theology of money. How should we think biblically about money? What are some of the key biblical passages? How should we think about wealth versus poverty? We get into in this discussion, not only looking at some key biblical passages, but also looking at how a bad theology of money manifests itself practically. For example, we look at Christians in the past, in the Middle Ages, for example, taking vows of poverty. Was that a good thing? Was it not? We talk about some practical things today. That's one of the key parts of this episode that you'll enjoy. Towards the end, Mason goes into full financial services mode and gives us some very basic places to get started, some key advice on financial planning for our lives as Christians. And so I think that will be very helpful for you. At the end, I'll be back with a few closing words. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Theology for the People. I am joined today by Mason Mortimer. Hey, Mason, thanks for being with us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Nick. I appreciate it. Well, Mason, you're here because you have worked in the financial services industry now for 17 years, but you also have a background in uh, Bible college. You serve in your local church. Maybe just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you're from, what ministries you're involved in. Absolutely. So way back, I grew up on a wheat farm in South Central Kansas and grew up in a very religious experience, but not necessarily knowing God, knowing Jesus in a personal way. Became a Christian when I was 17. And man, that was it. I was like, that is my purpose in life. I'm supposed to be in full-time ministry. I'm supposed to do this thing. So we went to a four-year university, got my degree and went out into the work world. Don't know why I didn't really go to Bible college, but I didn't. And so had a pretty difficult job the first time around. So I said, it must be because I'm not doing what God calls me to do or called me to do. Because if I was doing that, life would be super easy and everything would be perfect. Well, went to, to Calvary Chapel Bible College in Marietta, California, and just loved it. Graduated in two years and said, man, I am ready to take on the world for Jesus. I'm going to be a missionary in Northwestern China. And that did not happen. <laughs> and so having a wife now and a responsibility, I needed to make sure I provided for my family. So I started working again in the financial services industry about 17 years ago. And here I am today. I serve in children's ministry for my church. I serve every other month in that. I've done youth ministry. I've done marriage ministry. I've done adult ministry. So that's kind of who I am. I say I'm a financial advisor that's uh, just doing God's will the best I can. Yeah, that's great. You know, I think that probably most people who listen to our podcast are not pastors and leaders, and yet most of my guests are pastors and leaders. And so mm -hmm. I, I'm really glad to have you on because of that reason. You know, it's a it's a great example of how you can serve the Lord in a vocational job, etc. You know, that that's actually one of the pillars of the Reformation was the belief that you can serve God in any capacity or in any job. So I think that's really cool. Great example. So tell us a little bit about where you live, where you serve, those kinds of things. 
Yeah, I'm in Temecula, California, and been here for since August of 2005. And and again, like I said, serving children's ministry. And I think the where I serve the most is with the people I interact with every day. I'm not a great evangelist, Nick, but I do love people and I do love Jesus. And I found that one thing, well, uh, out of the hundreds of people that I've asked, only one person has refused prayer. And so yeah. the the unbeliever viewpoint sometimes is, well, hey, I can use all the help I can get, you know, from the man upstairs. And so that's part of my ministry is I just pray for people a lot. And I, I like doing that because it shows people that God is not this ominous spiritual force, that, though he is. He's not, you know, like the Bible says, he's not far from any one of you. And mm-hmm. so that's, again, in my job. I'm just sharing Jesus all day long. I'm just loving on people. I talk to probably 15 to 20 different people every day, and I, I do get to pray with quite a lot of them. Oh, that's awesome. Well, so let's let's shift over to talk about our topic for today, which is really, I want to talk about the theology of money, but also how bad theology of money works out practically. And then I'd like to finish with some advice for people on good stewardship and and money management, those kinds of things. So let's begin by talking about uh, money. I mean, you work in the financial services industry. You're also a Christian. It's interesting when you think about uh, the ways Christian ways people have thought about money historically, ways that uh, people who call themselves Christians have thought about it, and how ought we to think about it uh, biblically. So do, do you have any thoughts on that to start us out? So... Though this is not a scripture, my mentor about 25 years ago now said that money is this. It is a wonderful servant and it is a horrible master. And that's what I try to treat money as. It's my servant. It's here to serve me to do the things that I need to do on this earth. And it's also a stewardship because, you know, the parable of the talents and and countless other examples, God calls us to steward the resources that he's given us. I think one of the things that people get caught up about, and maybe it's in Nick, I'm not sure, but people see it as very bad to have a lot of money or have a lot of resources. Again, I don't know if it's just envy or what, but I, from what I hear, it comes from a misquotation of a scripture that you know well. It says, for the love of money is the root of every kind of evil. And somewhere along the line that has been translated or maybe paraphrased to money is the root of all evil. So my encouragement to people, specifically Christians, is to make certain that they're stewarding well what God has given them because God's giving those resources for, and we can talk about this a little later, but to have an abundance to do good works for his kingdom. Could he rain down money from the sky? Absolutely he could. Not in my experience, the way he chooses to do it, but he does like to involve us in his work. And so that's what I think money is for, for believers. All it is is a tool to serve Christ with. Mm. You know, in Romans chapter 14, Paul's talking about uh, meat sacrifice to idols, but he's saying, giving us a principle that applies beyond that as well. And one of the things he says there is he says, you know, there's really nothing that is sinful in and of itself. And I think that that is a really interesting thing to run through your mind, right? So is money inherently evil? Well, um, 
No, but it's neither, neither is it inherently good, right? Like you said, it's a resource that can be used either for good or for bad. Kind of like, kind of like a knife, right? Is a knife a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it really depends what you do with it. You can do really good things with knives and you can do really bad things with knives, but in and of itself, it's just a, a thing. And so, you know, one, one person I heard on this topic, he said that like many things in creation, Money is, it's created, it is fallen, but it can be redeemed, kind of following that biblical story of, you know, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And so creation, fall, and then redemption, you know, I think that there, there's something to that. So what do you think are some, you, you mentioned some common misconceptions about the Bible and money. I, I think that some people, like you, you said, Maybe they have this idea that it's inherently more spiritual to have less money. What would you say to somebody who, who thinks that? I, I would have to disagree. A loose application of the scripture, live as you're called, would say that if God has called you to be scarce in your resources because he wants to do something different in your heart, then that's what you've got to do. <clears throat> but to say it's inherently evil or it's not a good idea to have money, a lot of money or money at all, I don't necessarily think that's ingenuous to say. Mm. The scriptures that I see, Old Testament, you know, the Proverbs, very widely spoke about money. The verses that are associated with wealth and riches, it's super connected with diligence, with thoughtfulness, and with wisdom. And the verses that are associated with poverty, a lot of it, and I want to be very careful to say, Nick, if you are struggling or one is struggling out there with money, that does not mean God has pronounced a curse on you and you're doing something wrong. Sometimes, like Job, it just happens. But a lot of times we might see poverty as a burden or a curse we have, but really it might be some of the, the lack of the ability to work. There's one of my scriptures or a scripture that I like, you know, I went by the field of the lazy man, the field or the field of man devoid of understanding. And there it was overgrown with nettles. The stone wall was broken down and it goes on to say, you realize this, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So shall poverty come upon you like a bandit and your need like an armed man. Mm -hmm. And again, I, I just believe that God has created us to work. He's called us to be diligent. He's called us not to be hasty or try to get rich quick. So I think money is a way to honor Christ. And in your work, he, he create, created Adam and Eve to tend the garden. In your work, God can bless you in that again to be able to bless others. Yeah. You know, just to add a little bit of um, just info to this, I, I lived in Eastern Europe for 10 years in Hungary, which is kind of, you know, it's not the poorest of the Eastern European countries, but it's not the wealthiest either. And so one of the things that I saw, you know, doing a lot of work as well in like Ukraine and Romania is that sometimes there are also mitigating factors, right? Like, you know, it's, it's uh, here in the United States, I think that we tend to think, well, if people just work hard, they will be successful. But in some places in the world, there are sy systems and situations set up with corruption and things like that, where it's like, you can actually work hard and not be wealthy. And, you know, I, I know people who work 50 hours a week and 
And probably there's not a lot of prospect for them to ever be wealthy in that system just because the, it's stacked against them in a way. One, one person I heard, he gave a rubric for this. He said, you can look at it as a, if you were to draw some axes, for example. On the one hand, you've got the one axis that it says rich or poor, and then you've got another one that says righteous or unrighteous, and then you've got four quadrants, essentially. So you have the uh, righteous rich, the righteous poor, the unrighteous rich, and the unrighteous poor, and that God would say, you know, strive for righteousness, be diligent, and, you know, in some occupations, like, you know, I'm a pastor, not a lot of uh, really rich <laughs> pastors, right? So certain occupations right. that you might choose, like being a missionary in northern China, it's probably not a good way to get rich. But again, there's something more important in life than that. And yet, on the other hand, if money is a resource, then what does it mean to use it well? So to that end, let's talk about what does the Bible have to say about money? Maybe you and I could just do kind of off-the-cuff review of some of the things that the Bible might have to say uh, regarding people and money. So I was thinking, we'll start with the Old Testament and go through Jesus, sure. the New Testament epistles. With the Old Testament, I mean, one of the first things that comes to mind in regard to money is Abraham, because so Abraham and uh, he had so many, so much cattle, so many uh, flocks and animals, which in that time, right, like you didn't have stocks and bonds, you had cattle. That's how you stored your money. Correct. And so he had quite a lot of it, right? Like so much that him and Lot couldn't even live in the same vicinity and he had people who worked for him and and it seems that that was there there was some righteous aspect to that um any any other thoughts of people in the old testament that come to mind you know just just thinking of abraham i thought of isaac and it said he had i don't know exactly where it is but it, it said he had flocks and herds and he is a man who began prospering and continued prospering until he was very prosperous. Mm. The scripture is I want to say such that Abimelech said, you need to go away because you're becoming mightier than we are. And I think that's ironic because uh, Proverbs, uh, again, I don't remember the reference, but it says that the wealth of the wicked is stored up for the righteous. And I thought that was interesting, an interesting application of that scripture because the wicked Philistines had that wealth and God moved Isaac in, and it was just like that it was stored up for him. You know, right? Like, I, I can only assume Abraham, your righteous Abraham, uh, taught Isaac that same righteousness or taught him the way of righteousness. And so that wealth that Abimelech and his gang had gained was stored up for Isaac. And so I, I thought that was interesting. And uh, one of the things in preparing for this podcast, I looked at Solomon's relative wealth, you know, there are individuals, i.e. the two richest fellows in the world right now, that would think they're setting on quite a kingdom. That was about one-fifth of what Solomon has. His equivalency would be about $2 trillion today. Wow. And Solomon, the wealthiest man that ever lived and arguably the wealthiest man that will ever live, said, it's all vanity. And mm. so I thought that was an interesting example in the Old Testament. Yeah. For sure. And I think there are probably more examples. You know, Job was obviously very wealthy, and then he went to being losing everything. And I think that's a pretty good example because it shows us that the reason he lost everything, his friends said it was because he must have had some secret sin or God was punishing him. In reality, it wasn't anything that Job did wrong. Job continued to be a righteous man even when he lost everything. 
And so I think that gives us a little bit of a nuance and balance in the in thinking about it as well. How about Absolutely. Jesus? I mean, what did Jesus have to say about money? He always well, I mean, in his parables a lot. A lot of times people point to foxes have holes, birds the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head and say, Well, look at that. It's it's to your point earlier, it's more spiritual to be poor. And the context of that doesn't necessarily indicate that. It's more of those individuals like like you were saying, it's tough to be wealthy as a missionary in northwestern China. And so Jesus was telling the folks that wanted to follow him, hey, I'm just telling you, you're not going to have a house because we're on the move, folks. We're preaching the gospel everywhere. And it's if you want to start a business and try to be successful in that, that's great. But that's not what we're called to do here. And so Jesus's ministry was not to start a business and be wealthy. It was to come live a sinless life, die for the sins of the world and be resurrected. But as far as him teaching about money, Correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, but I think the two concepts he spoke about most are hell and money. So obviously he put a pretty high priority on it. Yeah, Jesus talked about money in 11 of his 39 parables. Uh, he spoke about money more than he talked about um, faith and prayer. So we think about, you know, we, we often think about these passages in which Jesus talks about faith and prayer. Now, what's interesting, though, is when he talks about money, he doesn't necessarily always give principles. In some cases, he does. But in, in many cases, he's using it as an illustration just because money is something that so many of us are familiar with. It's part of our lives. We can't really avoid it. And so, yeah, Jesus had quite a lot to say about it, or at least he talked about it a lot. And what are some of the things that you remember Jesus saying about money? Ultimately, it's I, I, when I think of money, I think a lot of the parable of the talents. And Jesus, like I was talking about earlier, one of my creeds in my business is to enable or help people become stewards of the wealth that they've been temporarily entrusted. Mm -hmm. And Jesus spoke to the individuals about giving them talents. And yes, it could be giftings, but in the context, it was money. It is what it is. And so he gave those individuals talents and went away I mean, not Jesus but the parable fellow like given talents and went away and the people that took those stewarded those well and then increased they were blessed but the individual that it is because he was scared of his master that's the individual that was cursed you might say well that was that was so harsh well it's Jesus I don't know what to tell you he said it it means it's not harsh it's the right thing and so again, that's I, I, that's the main verse that I can remember, main parable that I can remember. What about you? Yeah, you know, Jesus had a, one of the most interesting parables that he said, and I think one of the most misunderstood parables, or maybe not misunderstood, just people are confused about it. Like it's a parable found in Luke chapter 16, the parable of the dishonest steward. It's a really interesting parable. So this guy has a financial manager, if you will, this uh, wealthy man. He has a financial manager. He finds out that his financial manager has been not doing a good job. So he's going to fire him. And he basically says, okay, you got till the end of the day to be out of the office in our terminology. And the guy uses the rest of the day to call up all the people that he had been, you know, collecting debts for his, his boss for. And then he gives them discounts and essentially does things with the money that he still, for that limited amount of time, has access to that will cause them to be his friends in the future. And, and Jesus says, well, he was very shrewd. And people are like, wait, 
this guy seems like he's doing something wrong, and Jesus seems to be saying that he's praising him. Well, what Jesus is praising is not the man's dishonest actions, but what he's praising is the, the foresight. And basically, Jesus is saying, just as this man was a steward of things which were not ultimately his own, you are also a steward of things which were not ultimately your own. Just as this man was on the clock, if you will, he only had till the end of the day. In the same way, you are on the clock. Your life is on the clock. You've got a short time here. And what are you going to do in order to make sure that when you are, this is what he says at the end of the parable, so that when you are well, so that you will be welcomed into heavenly dwellings when you arrive. In other words, how can you use your resources, whether they be financial or otherwise, here on earth, in order to do things so that when you get to heaven, there will be people there to welcome you who wouldn't have been there otherwise, right? People who would say, because of the way you used your resources on earth, now I'm in heaven and I, I have a welcoming party when I arrive. I think it's one of the most important parables that Jesus ever taught. And it's a shame that so many people uh, don't understand it. So I think that's one of my, my favorites in, in regard to, to money. But of course, Jesus says things like don't store up uh, treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up treasures in heaven where those things don't happen. What is your thought about that? Par that well, it's not a parable. That's just a, a statement. What right. do you think about that? I mean, how does that relate to you know, your work with financial services, et cetera, how does that direct you? So I'm going to say something here that I'm not dogmatic about and that it's not doctrine, but it's just a literal reading of the test text. He says, do not store up for yourself treasures on this earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break and still, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So I heard, this is not my original thought. I don't have many of them, but I heard a pastor teach about this. He said, I'm just taking a literal reading of the text, store up for yourselves. He says, I can't prove it doctrinally, but the text seems to lend itself to the fact that there could be a pushing it forward into heaven or not. So I'm not, I'm not sure. I mm. think again, it's just that stewardship. We have to have a place to live. Most of us have to have cars to drive. We have to support our family. So in a certain sense, there's a storing. But I think Jesus is also lending to the fact that don't count on those riches because I'm the individual who is provided for you. David said, I've been old, been young, never seen the righteous forsaken, nor the, nor the descendants begging bread. They're ever merciful and lend. And David was obviously a, a man of wealth. But he knew where the focus should be, and he knew where the perspective. I think Proverbs says, as far as, you know, don't give me too much that I deny you, and you know, think I've, I've done all this, and don't give me too little that I curse you. Mm. And so it's always a balance to say money is a tool. It's nothing that I puff myself up with. It's just something God has entrusted. And one day, he will require an account for not just my money, but every single resource that he's given me, have I stewarded it well? That's really good. Well, just would you tell me, have you ever had what you would consider to be an unhealthy uh, relationship with money or have you seen it in other people? And, uh, and what does that look like? You, you meant, we've talked a little bit about like the, the not letting it be, well, I guess we would say, 
how did you say it? it's a good servant? We've talked about that a little bit. We'll talk about it more. But how how have you seen it be a master in somebody's life or maybe even your own life? Oh, man, uh, this was definitely before I became Christian and God changed. That's one of the first things God changed my perspective on was money. That's all I've ever wanted. When I was I, I started working when I was six years old. I know that sounds strange, but on the farm, they make you work because that's what we do on the farm. And so I've worked ever since then. I signed my yearbook before I got saved. I signed it, Mason, Millionaire by 30, Mortimer, because that is what I wanted to do. I wanted, I didn't even need the car or the house. I just wanted the bank statement that said what it said. And that is one thing that God really convicted me on when my, my pastor, I was saved in the charismatic movement. So we were big on tithing. So I, I heard a tithing message that just compelled me. And he talked about this God's resources. All he's asking you to do is give him 10%, the first 10. And again, that could be 13. It could be 23. It could be net, could be gross. But ultimately he's requiring that of you to know that you understand that he's in charge. But Nick, I had a horrible, horrible relationship with money because that's what I was seeking. I wasn't seeking Jesus. I was seeking the status of having. Wow. Okay. Wow. That's, that's really cool testimony. And so that changed as you, as you came to understand the gospel and, and what would you say was kind of your big, your biggest revelation in this process? I've not had it and I've had it. It's more comfortable to have it but it's better to rely on Jesus not having it and having it, knowing where it comes from. I, I know that sounds like a super you know, spiritual thing to say, but it's truly what I believe. It's, it's just another dollar to me. That's all it really is. Because again, one day I'll give it back and he doesn't care how much I made. Mm. He cares what I did with what I made. Mm. And so that's, that's where I stand right now. Yeah, you know, we talk about the love of money. And one of the things that I, I realized when I lived in Hungary and I worked with, we, we had two churches that I pastored. One was a Hungarian, you know, white church, if you will. The other one was a, a gypsy church. Gypsies, you know, Roma people are minority in Eastern Europe and generally poor. And so that church was very different culturally because of the poverty aspect. And one of, one of the things I learned, though, is that the love of money. I think many people assume that the people who love money are probably like the mega rich, right? They're the ones who love money. What I realize is that actually many people love money who don't have any money at all. Like poor people tend to be obsessed with money. They tend to think really? that when I have money, then I will have everything. In other words, they have a hope in financial riches that is very similar to like the hope that they should have in God. And on the other hand, I've seen people who, who have had some money and it's through the process of having money that they've realized that that's not it, that there's something more out there. And so I would just say to anybody listening to this and say, oh yeah, the love of money, that's what, you know, the mega wealthy struggle with. I would say, actually, I think anybody can be susceptible to the love of money driving their life. So, you know, that's a great point because I've, I've never thought about that, Nick, that's exactly where I was. Because, you know, I said we were raised on a farm, wool farmers got lots of money. Not if they make incredibly bad decisions and an uncle embezzles that they don't mm. have any money. 
And so I remember being young and my parents always talked about me having money. So I put like a $10 bill in my dad's wallet just so he could have some money because I, I always seemed to have it. But that, that bring the upbringing taught me that if I just have a ton of money, then I'll never worry like my parents are worried. And so ironically, my sister and I, we hoarded a lot. That's what we did. And that's why I think I can't spend a lot right now is because of that mentality that says, yes, I know God will provide, but if he doesn't, I need this. Mm. Because a lot of what we're raised and taught about money, in my opinion, needs to be reconditioned and be renewed to God's word. So I will not at all say I'm perfect in this because I still have my own struggles about having and not having. Wow. Well, let's let's talk about how a bad theology of money can manifest itself practically. One of the first things that came to my mind is just thinking historically about how Christians have related to money in the past. But before we do that, I want to get into one really important verse, which I'll just read for people and then factor that it it says. And that's 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Paul's writing Timothy and he says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I I think that passage sums up so much about how we're to think about money, you know, not to be haughty, not to set our hopes on it, but to use it to store up treasures that can be a foundation for the future and eternal life. So a really important passage there. Now, here's another thing that comes to my mind. Maybe you can speak into this. I think that almost everybody, when they hear that passage or they hear other passages like uh, Luke chapter 10, where Jesus talks about the, the foolish rich man. And so I think many people would hear that and they say, yeah, rich people, that's somebody other than. But I think statistically, if you are living in Europe or the United States, North America, you actually are the global rich. Do you have any thoughts towards that? It's so, so true. And Nick, I really love what you said earlier about, you know, people in foreign countries, they don't necessarily have the resources because of the system. And think of India and the system that they have. You're in a certain class and you can't get out. After I was in the charismatic movement, and I'm not saying every charismatic church teaches this, but man, we were prosperity gospel folks. You give, you get, you give, you get. That's That was all there was to it. And so I then... I uh, started hanging out with a fellow named Shane, and he was very quick to correct my theology. He said, if it don't preach on the mission field, it don't preach. Mm. And that's, I, I think, I think that's the case. And a lot of times Americans, we think, oh, the rich are people that live in those great neighborhoods. No, the rich are people who have food every day, who have a job to go to who have a warm and or cold bed to sleep, cool bed to sleep in, that's the rich. And I think, I hope at least as we become more global and have contact with people from other countries that we can start to see that truly we are incredibly blessed and we are incredibly wealthy as, like you said, Europeans, or I say developed European countries and also the United States. 
Yeah. And I, I mean, that's, I, I see where our listeners come from. We do have some listeners in the developing world, which is excellent. But I would just say to the majority of our listeners, I mean, realize this, that when Jesus is speaking to the rich or when Paul's speaking and he addresses the rich in this present age, he's not talking to somebody else. He's actually talking to us. And that's really important that these principles apply, not just to uh, like, oh, I sure hope the rich people are reading this or listening to this. No, no, this applies to us. <laughs> exactly. So just thinking through historically how some bad theology of money has manifested itself practically, Francis of Assisi, you know, founder of the Franciscans, he uh, said that poverty, he even wrote a song to poverty and he called it the queen of virtues. <laughs> And many of the early, you know, monastic orders, so for example, the Dominicans, Franciscans, they, those two particularly, took vows of poverty, as did Benedictine monks. And there was something about poverty that they saw as being inherently spiritual. Now, in many cases, this was a pushback against, um, actually, the, how the churchmen of that day were actually, tended to be actually really wealthy. And so this was almost a, a pushback to say, hey, you know, you guys have, have given in to avarice and things like that. And, and we're going to just get back to the simplicity of following Jesus and not doing it for financial gain. I think that many of their, their, their like impetus, they were sensing something that was right, that what these people, the way that the churchmen of their day were relating to money was somehow not good. And yet I'm not sure that they, they drew the right conclusions. You know, living in Hungary again, uh, we lived in this town that was ruled by an archbishop, had an archbishop and a uh, basilica, which is, again, it's a, it's a dynamic that we don't experience a lot here in the United States. But you could just imagine that this bishop lived in an opulent palace and the rest of the town was quite poor. And so I, I could understand how there could have been some pushback to that. But many people throughout Christian history, they were moved by Jesus' words to the rich young ruler, which were, if you want to be complete, go and sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. All right, any thoughts towards what Jesus said to the rich young ruler and how it applies or doesn't apply to I, I think a lot of times people take that and they take the widow's might. She gave all she had, so that's what we need to do. It, again, correct me if, if I'm wrong, Nick, but I believe Jesus was speaking to the issue that kept the rich young ruler from fully submitting his life to Jesus. He might as well just have, you know, talked about anything else, like there, say he had a job that he loved, or say in our current vernacular, have a sport that they idolize, or they're, they're frankly, some people idolize their children. I don't necessarily think that Jesus spoke just to his money as a commandment for everybody to sell all they have, it was for him because money ruled him because he didn't allow it to be his servant. He let it become his master. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that exactly. So what would you say to the person who says this? I, I'm living moment to moment because Jesus could come back at 2.30 this afternoon because I know that in a lot of a lot of circles that I've moved in, you know, there's a, there's this sense, and I think it's a good and biblical sense that Jesus could come back at any moment. And so there's this idea that, um, either because you believe that, or because you want to show other people how much you believe it, that you say, well, I'm just, I don't have a plan for the future. What would you say to somebody who approaches their financial situation or financial planning in that manner? I'd say that's a pretty cavalier way to do it. And 
I telling them that's not what God said to you, you didn't hear right? I'm not. They can absolutely live like that if they would like to. However, Jesus said, occupy till he comes. And to occupy means build a house, start a family, do great your job. Because people, and I don't mean to be like the scripture that says, all the individuals say, since the time of our fathers, they've been saying this, and I, I'm not going to be that guy. But people have been saying, Jesus is coming back for a long time. But what if he doesn't? Nick, I used to have a, a belief, please part my theology, that if you loved Jesus, you didn't get Alzheimer's, you didn't get dementia, you didn't get any of those organic brain diseases because that was a, I mean, that was people that didn't cr trust Christ. And in the last five years, I've seen quite a number of people who I know that truly love Jesus, that are serving God with all their heart, that get those things. And again, those things are very, very expensive to pay for. And so I would encourage everyone to continue to occupy. And if you leave a lot behind for unbelievers, hey man, praise the Lord. More, they can do whatever they like to with it because I'm sitting at the feet of my king. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, maybe just give us some, some insight into what you think are maybe some advice towards good stewardship for our listeners. Absolutely. The thing, the thing that I see most with individuals who run in Christian circles is the lack of planning, not with money, but with risk that could be transferred that's going to cost you a lot of money. I've heard a lot of individuals in ministry and actually a lot of Christians who don't get health insurance. What people don't know is the largest cause of bankruptcy in the United States is unpaid medical bills. It's not frivolous spending or anything like that. It's unpaid medical bills. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so that's one thing, health insurance. Also a three to six months savings account. And I, I know I sound like Ramsey right now, but it's true. That's what you need. The other thing, and I've seen this hurt a lot of people, Nick, term life insurance or whatever life insurance you choose. It's very inexpensive, especially if you're younger. And it can really protect and provide for individuals should you leave this earth prematurely. For individuals who is, are the primary breadwinner, please don't leave your life, or please don't leave your spouse without life insurance. Very important. So those are two, those are three of what I call the bottom rung as far as planning is going. Once those things are established, health insurance, life insurance, three to six months of savings, then you can move on to the next two blocks on the pyramid, which are college savings and retirement savings. And then the last one, when you've made all your money and have your huge estate, it's estate planning. But if I could encourage any of our listeners, if you don't have life insurance, get life insurance. Everyone who works, whose spouse even in part depends upon their income, needs life insurance. Just make sure you talk to a qualified life insurance person in your church or wherever, just to make sure, because a lot of insurance individuals like to sell products that really do well for them and maybe they're okay for you. 
Yeah, I think there's a, I mean, even when I, we make jokes about them, right? Like insurance salesmen and uh, life insurance salesmen, I think that we, people in general tend to be wary of them and wonder like, where can I actually get good advice where this person's not just going to be taking advantage of me as a client? Do you have any thoughts towards that? For insurance, go with people that you've known for and known that have been in the business for a while. So I, I'm not a... I'm not an insurance guy, but I, I know a lot of them. And if they're in business for longer than four years, it means they're not just doing it because they were in, in between jobs. It means that's truly their craft. It's what they're practicing. And again, just go with that trust factor because it's, it's actually really easy to get tricked with life insurance. And so that's, that's the, be my only admonition. Mm -hmm. That's really good to hear. Well, any thoughts towards for our listeners, you know, what if they, they don't know where to begin with planning, you know, you, you had even mentioned to me at one point having a death box for your spouse. What is So I call it a death box because that's what it is. It sounds incredibly morbid, but it's just what it is. It, this could be the husband. This could be the wife. If you are the individual who does a lot of the family planning regarding insurance and paying the bills and doing investments, etc. I encourage you strongly to write a step-by-step -step list of everything your spouse needs to know should you be to pass away. And th the reason for this, they are going to be mourning your death. They are going to be thinking about all the things that they need to do. So what I did, I think I'm up to about 43 steps for my wife. It starts with going to a friend of mine that's going to be able to help her, but it tells her all of her accounts, all the numbers, what everything is paid with, how it all works out. So she can go, if I were to pass away, and just take a step-by-step -step process to know exactly what she needs to do with somebody else's help. So those two things, that and by the way, I would not keep the box in your house. I would keep it in a safe deposit box. I wouldn't put it on your hard drive. I, I wouldn't do anything like that. I would make a hard copy in some type of document source and then put it in a safety deposit box at a bank. I have never heard of a bank burning down, but I've heard of a lot of houses burning. So how about investment pyramid? I mean, how, what, what's the way, I mean, you mentioned a few steps in that, but what are some ways, like yeah. somebody who hasn't ever had any investments, which is kind of like the majority of people that I know in, in <laughs> ministry and things like that. Like, I mean, right. let's say somebody's like, I've never done it. I've always known that I probably should, but I've never done it. Where should I get started? So I would say talk to a local financial advisor. If you have a church that has 50 people in it, you probably have a financial advisor at your church. And so talk to them about that, sit down and see what the process is to build your goals. Nick, for ministry leaders, they should think about the possibility of a 403B for their church. That's a way to get the, for well, it's not forced, but it, that's a way to make it easy, easy, easy for your staff to take money out of their payroll, put it right into their retirement. Obviously, you cannot dictate that number one, they do it, and you can't dictate how much they put away, but I think that's an excellent way to start there. Hmm. So. And you, and here's the other thing, there's a lot of software online. There's a lot of resources online that you can know where to start 
and know where to start, you know, paying off debt if you need to do that or any other re resources. Dave Ramsey, though, he, he's made a prodigious amount of money having volunteers like me teach his courses. Sorry for the dig, Dave, if you ever listen to this. He does have very good principles. Mm -hmm. He has a specific formulary in his books. And so Financial Peace University is a class that is taught at many churches. Also, his book, The Total Money Makeover, is very, very good for a novice person. Great. Yeah. You know, I was just thinking Proverbs 13, verse 22, it says that a righteous man or a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And so, um, you know, again, Proverbs being principles for life, it isn't to say that if you don't do that, that you have, uh, that you're an unrighteous person, but it is saying that as a general principle, it is a good and wise thing to do is to think not just about yourself, but to leave an inheritance that, that can go for generations. I was thinking about Jonathan Edwards, you know, that Jonathan Edwards famously used to pray for seven generations of his family regularly, you know, generations that would come after him. And what's interesting is that if you look at the, the generations that came after Jonathan Edwards, he left them a great spiritual inheritance. I don't know about his uh, financial inheritance, but I think that there's a really important principle there that applies both on the spiritual side and the financial side. Because if I'm understanding what you're saying, correctly, wouldn't it be that, that we're saying that maybe these things, according to Jesus, according to the Bible, are not just completely separate categories that never touch each other? Maybe the, the spiritual and the material are actually much more intertwined than many people might tend to think. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And I think that's one of the, the ways that God uses money, because I find if I have my focus on him, and he is the centrality of my life. Honestly, I don't have a lot of money problems, but I do find that when my focus gets off, that's a very easy way for him to get my attention. Mm. And so Nick, if, if I could step back, there's one thing that I failed to do that I believe would be very helpful to a lot of Christians, guardianship or minor children. Why this is important. A lot of individuals myself included, are first-generation Christians. That means, like a lot of people in our family, don't know Jesus. If you and your spouse were to pass away in a common accident and you did not have guardianship established, i.e., who takes care of your kids, most of the listeners probably don't know that the state has a very predetermined process for that if somebody dies without instructions. I say that to, to Christians that are, again, maybe first generation. It could be that your family members are not the people you want your kids to be raised by. Hmm. So it's very, very easy to do. You can look online, but I'd say that's incredibly, incredibly important to make sure that your kiddos have guardianship by the person you want and but not by the person the state establishes for you. Again, sorry for making that rabbit trail, but that's one of those things that I think, you know, there's a few things that I think Christians knew about the state planning and money. It would help a lot. That is probably top three on the list. Wow. Okay. Really good to know. Here's one question that I've heard a lot is that, you know, you mentioned debt kind of in passing. I wonder how many mm -hmm. people are listening to this and they're like, Man, I'm not even, I can't even think about investing because I'm in debt and I, you know, I'm drowning in it. My hope is to someday just not have as much debt as I currently have. So two questions. One is what, yeah. what are your thoughts about 
investing while a person is currently in debt? And number two, what do you think about this? Let's say a person is a Christian. They feel that God has called them to tithe or to give and contribute to the work of the ministry through their local church or through other organizations, and yet they're in debt. You know, some people would say, well, is it actually a good idea to be giving money to God, to the church, et cetera, if I'm in debt? What, what are your thoughts about those two things? Okay, so Nick, I love answering the second question because you as a pastor, if you talk about this in your church, you get nailed because you're a money grubber and you're trying to get in their wallet, et cetera. You tell me to give you money before I give to my church. Well, so here's the great thing. I have no ulterior motive. You can't give to me, period. Yes, I truly believe that God's very clear that the first fruits are his. The, when I told you about the charismatic church I was at, that pastor taught the tithing message. And he said, I encourage you to try this. Do what God's calling you to do. And if and I'm, I'm from the show me state, Missouri, so I'm, I'm a show me the money type of guy. He said, if you do not believe that in six months that you've been blessed or you believe that you're truly worse off because you tithe, go to the office and Sue was the secretary at the time. Sue will write you a check for every single dollar you've given us. And I thought, oh, we'll do this <laughs> because if I'm cursed or if I have any money, I'm getting, getting this all back. Nick, I started doing that and God prospered me so much that at the end of my college, I went to the financial aid office, and this is not, you know, to my horn, I'm just saying how good God is. I went into the financial aid office and got a printout of all the scholarships and student loans that I'd been given throughout my whole college career and tithed on that mm. because I'm like, this is serious. God's called us to tithe and I don't want to hold anything back. I was just telling my wife, Helena, there's a few different scheduling or doing a K1 form now, which is a tax form and some certain finances. I said, honey, I'm just so worried. I, I don't want to hold anything back from God. I, I, I'm getting these sources, but I don't know if I tithe them. I can't remember. She's like, just pray about it. It's going to be okay. <laughs> and so, yes, even if you have debt, I strongly encourage you to give to your local church because you're not giving to the pastor. You're giving to the work of the ministry. And then about people who are in debt, should they be investing? If you're at a company that has a plan that they give you free money to invest. If you'll put a little in, absolutely in that circumstance, I do believe that they should be investing that money because you're turning down free money if you don't. However, I strongly believe that the, the debt is, the emergency counts first and the debt is second. And one last thing I will mention about debt, people tend to say debt's wrong, it's evil, the borrower, servant, the lender. Well, I understand that. <clears throat> I don't think that's a proclamation necessarily. I think that says, hey, that is what it is. But just know that if you take it out, you are a slave till that gets paid off. So if you want to take a loan, take a loan. Just know your place if you choose to take a loan. That's great advice. Thank you so much, Mason. So in closing, you had mentioned earlier in the discussion that you pray for people when you talk to them about financial services. I'm wondering, <laughs> could we end this episode by having you pray for our listeners in regard to the things we've talked about? Without a doubt. Let's pray right now. Lord, we are incredibly grateful. We're just so grateful because God, of all the gifts you've given us, 
the gift of Jesus is by far the best. Lord, I pray for everyone listening because money is a thing that a lot of people, specifically Christians, are discouraged about. Because a lot of times what you allow to happen in individuals' lives to bring them to you encourages the exhausting of their financial resources. So Father, I pray that people wouldn't be crippled with condemnation or guilt or hopelessness, that God, you would give people a plan. I pray specifically that you would bring others who have done well with money, who have done well with investments into their lives to encourage them to do the right thing and not just to encourage them, to show them how to do it. We thank you, Lord, that you have entrusted us with resources. And in the U.S., if U.S. people are listening, we are the top 1%, period. So, Lord, I pray that you would let us focus on the gifts that we've been given. And again, help us become good stewards of the wealth, the resources, the treasures that we have just temporarily. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us, Mason. Without a doubt, I appreciate it being on. I hope you enjoyed that discussion. I will be back with you again next week for the next episode of the Theology for the People podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you would like to support this podcast, one of the best ways you can do that is by giving us a written review and rating on your podcast app, particularly the Apple Podcasts platform is very good at kind of boosting us in the algorithm when we get those reviews. So if you would do that, it would be greatly appreciated. Make sure to check out the blog version of Theology for the People, which is found on my website, nickkady.org. That's N-I-C-K-C-A-D-Y dot O-R-G. And if you haven't done so yet, it would be a great honor to me if you would check out my new book, which recently came out in March of 2020. You can find more information about that on my website, nickkady.org, and there's a tab there for book. You can also just go onto Amazon and search up Nick Cady, and the book is called The God I Won't Believe in, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity. Until next time, God bless you.